Glenn Lowry here. This is the Glenn Show. Glenn and John, we're the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. Okay, in fact, uh, we're underway at the Glenn Show. Glenn Lowry, uh, bloggingheads.tv and the Glenn Show at patreon.com. And I'm with Cornell West, the iconic public intellectual African-American uh, activist and uh, philosopher, uh, and with Tejos Kiros, who is himself a philosopher of distinction, the host of a television show, and the author of many important books and essays he teaches at the Berkeley School of Music. And I've known him for over 30 years. And we're here to discuss their book, Conversations with Cornell West, that is a small uh, compendium of uh, transcripts of discussions between Tedros and Cornell about deep philosophical questions relevant to the African-American experience and the African experience. So with that introduction, welcome Tedros, welcome Cornell to the Glenn Show. Man, I cannot believe that I have Cornell West on the Glenn Show. I'm you know, excited, I'm excited. <laughs> thank you for coming on and thank you Tedros for suggesting this conversation. My pleasure, Cornell. Well, it's always a blessing to be in conversation with you. I've been learning from you for over 40 years, and I continue to learn from you. Kind of you to say, you know, I'm a conservative, Cornell. Yeah, conservatives got insights too, my brother. You know, I'm a lapsed Christian. Are you lapsed, though? We got to work on that. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to reflect on this in the context of this memoir that I've been working on for a long time, but that's coming out in the spring of next year. That's interesting. My relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ has, has waned and, and I'm in a deep uh, reflection, self-reflection about, about the meaning of that. And I'm not, I'm not, I just read this book by Oz Guinness uh, who's arguing that the book of Exodus is the Magna Carta of humanity. I don't know if, you, I think that's the title of the book, the Magna Carta of humanity. I'm, I'm struggling uh, with my faith questions and with the existential questions, but uh, I, I fell away from the church, yeah. Oh, nothing wrong to fall away from the church. You just don't want to fall away from the love, but that's what this book is about. You want to fall away from the love. You don't want to fall away from the kenosis, from the emptying of yourself and giving of your gifts to the least of these as a way of being in the world. That's what it means to follow a Palestinian Jew named Jesus. That has nothing to do with the church for the most part, little to do with Christianity, you see. Well, this is going to be a personal confessional here to a certain degree. And since we've gone in this direction and uh, Tedros, I so thank you for being patient with us. My beloved Lawan Lowry, you met her. You met her at Brown University. Oh, yeah. She is a recovering Seventh-day Adventist who was scarred by the, you know what I'm talking about, by, oh, by this yeah. kind of thing that happens, this obsessive control yes. thing and this, this uh, and has completely, you know, I'm not even gonna say forsaken, I mean the bitterness and I, this is not criticism of her in any way whatsoever. Right, right. But what I'm saying is uh, in this uh, space that she and I occupy together of spirituality. Yes, yes. You know, I, I'm not on this journey by myself. Maybe that's what I'm saying. And it's a hard, mm -hmm. it's a hard, hard road, man. 
No, indeed, indeed. No, I understand that. But I mean, you you read St. Francis of Assisi, you read St. John on the Dark Night of the Soul, and you read the blues artists who held on to a love and a Jesus that had little to do with the institutional dogmatism and the narrowness of certain Christian practices. And all I'm saying is that the sense of the centrality of kenosis, of a love that is outpouring, of John 1.14, the word made flesh and came to dwell among us. That's always gonna call into question any kinds of institutional church practices that lose sight of the love power of the resurrection story. That's the key that I'm talking about, you see. And you, you and her have that love. It's the very love itself that constitutes the basis of the critique of the source of the scars. Does that make sense, brother? Yeah, it's very powerful. It's very powerful, and it reminds me of the book, Love and Coltrane. It reminds oh, me of that, yes. of that uh, dimension of this conversation. But it, it does not answer all questions and it calls me to faith that, you know, I got to believe, I got to believe it's going to be okay at the end of the day because I don't really see all the way to the end of the day. Oh, nobody does. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. We see partially. We live the questions. That's real, Kay. You don't, we don't have the answer. The Christian faith is the living of the questions. It's not the providing of the answers, but the love itself is the very means through which given the flesh that we are, given the flesh that Jesus was, allows us to sustain ourselves through the darkness. The darkness is not denied. We, give, we have strength to go through it. That's what the old Rose and I talk about in this text. So I have a cover story, and then I kind of have the real story about my own falling away. So the cover story is I had an administrative assistant, a wonderful woman, Sherry, Sherry DuPont. And she was uh, 42 years old, had just made law review, hadn't, having finished her first year of law school. She worked for me for five or six years. I uh, was very invested in my little institute on race and social division at Boston University back in the day, back in the 90s. And uh, got to law school, man, and finished her first year. I, I can still see her pulling a book bag behind her. She walked around the campus in an overall thing, getting focused on her 42-year-old law career made law review and got a viral infection in her heart and died, died just like that, died within months. I mean, we knew she was sick and then we knew wow. she was on the, and then she was dead, man. And that there was her funeral and her funeral uh, was at the AME church in the center of Cambridge. I'm sure you've been in it. I think I may have even seen you in it. Oh uh, yeah. You know, and, and man, dancing around, God's not dead, he's still alive. I can remember them singing those hymns, man. I can remember meeting her mother and her mother telling me, it's okay, it's okay, she's with Jesus. And I thought, and this is the cover story, I don't think it's the real story, but it's what I've been telling myself. I thought at that moment, my God, there is no account for this. There is no easy answer to this. There's, this is the abyss. It goes all the way down, all the way down. And we won't look into it with two busy in our emotionality, and we want to spare ourselves the agony of the existential condition in which we, in fact, find ourselves, of which this woman's demise was merely one instance. 
It's unserious. It's unserious philosophically. It's unserious ethically. It's an easy way out, I thought. I, I was driven from that church to looking for my Nietzsche, Cornell. I'm sorry to have to report that. But the cover story is in my rationality. You know, I don't believe in magic. A man raised from the dead, come on. I mean, I understand the power of the myth, but don't ask me to actually believe that. There's no extra material force that's at play that's making fate. There's nothing wrong with us gathering in the communities of love, but don't ask me to believe that. I got a PhD from MIT, you understand what I'm saying? So, but that's a cover story is what I'm saying. It was just too easy for me to say that, you know, and, and I'm, I'm still twisting in the wind out here and I don't, I don't quite know what to do. No, but I, I think in many ways, you know, when we refer to Dostoevsky in this text, because <clears throat> Dostoevsky is saying exactly what you're saying, but he's saying that as a Christian, right? Brother Karamazov is the most powerful indictment, not just of Christian practice, but also of Christian belief of what you were calling certain kind of supernatural formulations. But he remains a Christian. Why? Because he knows that there is a finitude, there is a fallibility, there is a fallenness in all of his perceptions. And he also doesn't want to in any way to, to, to view reason or rationality as an idol. That's why your PhD at MIT don't mean that much when it comes to dealing with death, dread, despair, and disappointment and disease. Because the the, the rationalist is not in any way, the empiricist is not in any way, the scientist is not in any way privileged to deal with what the poet's been talking about all the time. Isn't this what we're wrestling with, Theodros? Exactly right. That's what he did, Cornell. That's right. And um, additionally, Cornell, um, oh, we also address the um, issue of uh, nihilism. Oh, absolutely. That's what Brother Glenn is wrestling with. And you can't deny it. You can't be in denial about it. But at the same time, when you come out on the other side in the darkness and grimness, you can't in any way think that there is a, a, a way out. We are locked in the midst, in the funk, in what Samuel Beckett called the mess in time and space and history. And the, and the best we can do is to come up with examples tied to traditions and stories that help us get through. And at that point, it's not a question of uh, simply, you know, believing X or Y. It's a question of how your soul is fortified in order to get through. And you don't get through based on any stories. You don't get, get through based on superstition, but you don't get through based on any kind of rational certainty or any kind of narrow scientificity either. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, we have to have these stories. Absolutely. Uh, the stories are, uh, the, are the salve. They're, they're the way that we survive. They're the way that we maintain hope. That's right. It's why we keep trying. Why would we not despair and simply throw up our hands? I see what you're saying. That's it's very powerful. Absolutely. Because the thing is, we're already living in a moment of such spiritual decay and moral and cultural breakdown where the structures of value and feeling have been so flattened out by the market, where survival of the slickest was obsession with status and spectacle rather than moral substance and ethical content. And then the question becomes, well, how then do we connect with one another in such a way that we can pass the best of these traditions on to our children? 
And these are not uh, uh, issues of, uh, of, abstract, of abstract character. They have to do with the very ways in which we and our children and our grandmothers and fathers were able to get up every day in order to sustain themselves over against death, dread, despair, disappointment, white supremacy, predatory capitalism, hatred, greed, all the different hounds of hell that come pounding against us as the finite creatures that we are in the world. Additionally, too, if I may, you uh, certainly I may. Want, uh, we might also want to briefly broach uh, what I call the, the, the question of the crisis of American democracy, uh, which is profoundly linked uh, with the phenomena that um, Cornell was just beginning to address, the commodification of the self, the deprivation of fundamentally essential human resources that human beings as human beings must necessarily be entitled to, uh, which is linked to a systematic deprivation of human beings who happen to be dark-skinned, uh, who do not have access uh, to these material resources, uh, a point that uh, the, 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 that Glenn, uh, with his brilliance uh, diagnosis of the crises of democracy uh, within African-American life uh, is also a special instance of. Uh, so to, to understand uh, what uh, Glenn quite rightly calls uh, distorted pathologies in the uh, African-American lives, we must address the prior question of the crisis of democracy itself in and among the practitioners of uh, um, uh, American political life. Uh, okay, I, let, let me slow us down a little bit. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you though. If, if you were not finished, please, please conclude. I'm, I'm done. No, because I want to summarize and I want to put some structure on it because not everybody's going to be able to follow all the. So I hear on the one hand uh, an issue of the commerce, commercialization, commodification. A, uh, a, a decay of spirit, a, uh, a lack of appreciation of the humanity of people, a loss of contact with their suffering, uh, et, et cetera, and a kind of alienation in the social spirit, which yeah. is implicated in the nihilism. Now, when we say nihilism, what we're talking about is what Cornell was talking about in Race Matters, which he got so much flack for talking about in Race Matters back in the day which was what's going on amongst African-Americans, the violence in our community. Come on, we cannot look away from that violence. We cannot ignore that. That's pathos, man. That's loss. That's, that's human suffering. That is in our midst. That's happening right now. I'm not giving up politics when I say that. I'm trying to maintain contact with reality, with that mother who's grieving over that little casket in that storefront Pentecostal church where the boy has been gunned down in some drive-by. That is happening on a daily basis. You don't have to be... Uh, left or right or anything like that to be in touch with that. We cannot lose touch with that. On the other hand, That's right. we can't pathologize black people. That would be the way I put it. And I have used the word pathology because the level of the violence and what's going on is pathological in my opinion. Although we cannot pathologize blackness, we cannot pathologize the black experience. So that point that, and, and we have to situate it. We have to situate it within the larger forces among which are economic and political and institutional forces. We have to situated. I'm granting all of that, but I still have a point. We are responsible for how we live. We are responsible for how we raise our children. I'm talking about Black people. We have to take responsibility for our lives. It is far too seductive to allow the narrative 
the story that we had used to interpret our experience to become solely and singly our victimization. This is a deep mistake. It's a political mistake. More importantly, it's a spiritual mistake. It's an existential mistake. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so we cannot allow the machinations of the forces up here to uh, impede our embrace of that responsibility. And we cannot allow the narrative in the service of transitory political interests to obscure the responsibilities that are at stake here in our community. So I want you to situate my concern just expressed within both the failure of democracy point that you're making about the forces up here uh, and the commercialization commodification uh, point that you're making, which two are valid points. But I think the clock is ticking on black people in America. The world is not standing still and I'll stop. I know I'm making a speech, but I, I really want you to react to it. The world is, the Chinese are coming. American empire, as Cornell is fond of putting it, will not last forever. That's true. Black people are in no position to miss an opportunity to realize the full productive possibilities of our human potential. And that is not happening now. Okay. You are absolutely right though, but see for me, the. The talk about uh, victimhood on the one hand, and uh, and 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 uh, agency on the other, is really a, a certain way of talking about how do we stay in contact with the rich, complicated humanity of Black people. Now you see, just to take Black humanity for granted is such a radical act, because it's most people don't want to stay in contact with it. A lot of people want to stay in contact just with the good stuff. The other people want to stay in contact just with the, with the ugly stuff. Well, all that stuff goes together. And so when you stay in contact with the humanity of Black people, you can never view Black people solely victim, though you're not concerned with the truth, because we're not solely victim. We're always fighting. We're always coping. We're always creatively responding. But are we getting crushed? Yes. Are we crushing each other too often? Yes. Are the men crushing women too often? Yes. Are the straights cut? Are the middle class doing in the poor folk to all? Yes, all those realities have to be unflinchingly confronted. And it's so easy to be in denial on one side or the other, structural or behavioral, individual or, or institutional, class, gender, sexual orientation, or even in the national sense, in terms of imperial, right? Our relation to Haiti our relation to Brazil, our relation to whatever it is, Palestine, mediated with, 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 with various Jewish elites, but still subordination, domination, and so forth. So, the, so and this is where the Christian witness comes in again, though, brother. And I just want to keep bringing this out, because when you talked about how difficult it is to believe in a resurrection, if, if you look at what has happened in your own life and in my own life, given where we were, where we are now, that's a miracle. We must have gone believe in miracles because it's already been working in our own minds and hearts and souls and families. We've seen the power of love change people's lives, including changing our lives. That's part of the narrative in that sense. But to stay in contact with the humanity of Black people means you're going to get in trouble because you're going to be over against somebody else's conception of narrowing Black humanity either to just victimhood 
or just creative response or just or just a certain conception of blackness that's too narrow and too dogmatic, but can be easily weaponized in order for individual career or middle class status or whatever it is. We just got to be committed to the truth. Period. And that means it's going to come at us. Truth uncompromisingly spoken always has ragged, ragged edges against ourselves. The very people who speak it are going to be called into question. So when Brother Glenn said, well, I mean, he's conservative, he's progressive, you trying to stay in contact with the truth. And that's what I love about you. And then when I think that, that, that you're losing contact, I come at you, you think I'm losing contact, you come at me with a smile, with some music, and with some serious contestation. Hey, that, that's the way it ought to be. Yeah, and, you, yeah I'm sorry, Tedros, please. And of course, um, uh, I, I must uh, truly admire uh, Glenn for this uh, incredible summary that he gave uh, of what I attempted uh, to say. And now, uh, additionally, Cornell, in numerous speeches that you've given in the past, uh, because you're um, a truth-seeking individual, you've always acknowledged and uh, admired what you call the conservative insight, which is embodied in the courageous contributions of the great clan, which leads me now to, to steer the, director, the direction of the conversation to the discussion of love supreme in particular, and most generally music as such, in which the cries, the sorrows, the sufferings of people of African descent is embodied. And I can't think of anyone else other than Cornell, uh, who have addressed this issue most brilliantly. Uh, so brilliantly uh, that I even encouraged them in the little book. I know he's quite, uh, quite busy uh, to consider writing a very important work on the philosophy of music. So Cornell, why don't we go to Love Supreme and to the articulation of the cries of black people, which is embodied in their musics. Well, I want to give Brother Glenn a chance to uh, both respond and reflect, but I, but I also want to make sure that we talk about Love Supreme, both in Coltrane's version and other versions as well. But, but Brother Glenn, you jump in first, and then I'll say something about Coltrane, Love Supreme, and how it connects to the issue of Black humanity. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, contextualize the, the discussion about Black humanity and, and about the presumption of a of a denial of the of the of black humanity. Um, I mean, I wanted to tell a certain narrative about the history of the last 75 years uh, here in the United States with respect to African-Americans, which is much more triumphalist than it is defeatist. Uh, it would include the election of Barack Hussein Obama to the presidency of the United States as complex and problematic in many dimensions as that is. And I know you would have a lot to say about that if we were talking about that. It would include the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s canonization uh, and the civic narrative that's developed around him as it relates to the founding of the country and the, the you know, philosophies of uh, liberal democracy and all of that and integrating and the contestation over the 1619 Project and things of this kind, the situation of African-Americans striving within the American National Project and how it would relate to the diasporic situation of Black people relative to the whole historical dynamics since 1500, et cetera, et cetera. We could, I wanted to situate it because I think the glass is way more than half full. I think the fact that 
chattel slaves become citizens of the country. I am not excusing anything when I say this. I'm putting it within thousand years of political history. Become citizens of the country within a century, so much so that they can have outsized influence on, and we do have on the culture of this country. We drive a lot of national narratives here. The American story is the black American story to a very significant extent. The reason that we have a global footprint in terms of culture is largely because of the cachet and the spirit of African-American humanity, which shines through in the American cultural nexus. It shines through That's on the right. basketball court and the football field. It shines, shines through in the music studio and on the camera. It shines through, we're powerful people. We're not weak people. They do recognize our humanity in the main. I am aware of mass incarceration. I know you know that I'm aware of mass incarceration. Oh, yeah. I'm, not telling a, I'm not telling a cheerleader story here. That's right. But, but what I'm saying, is that the gross national product of Nigeria is about a trillion dollars and there are 200 million Nigerians. There are 40 million Americans in a country with a $20 trillion gross national product. We're rich, we're not poor, we're rich, viewed in appropriate perspective. I, I think we can dwell if we want to with certain people, I won't name names because it's not about calling people out who write books which basically say that they don't see us, they don't see us. But I think, again, that's the easy way out. They do see us in the main, not without the issues that we don't wanna lose track of, but it's the wrong way to see the problem to say that they don't, they don't see us. And again, I think it's taking, you say the agency versus uh, you know, victimization thing is, you, you, you wanna frame it a particular way. I think, it's, I think it is the question, man, I mean, I, I think, you know, we talk about disparities. Look at the family. Look, look at the structure of the relationships between men and women, which is the context within life is reaffirmed and reproduced. You can't say it's healthy. It's not healthy. Now, we're, that's on us. That's on us. And actually, it doesn't matter at some level what these forces are. Because if we don't man up and woman up, so I, I and it, you know, I, I know I'm repeating myself to a certain extent, but you asked me to respond, and that that is, uh, no, that is my response. No, but I, I, I think I think it's a um, a very crucial one because I think when Theodos raises the question of how do we talk about a love supreme in the context that you just laid out, though, brother Glenn. See, I would go, I would use Hegel's language. I would say black people are a world historical people. We are a great people precisely because in the face of 400 years of chronic hatred, we keep dishing out the love warriors who at the highest level exemplify love supreme. See, that's who Martin King is. That's who John Coltrane is. And I keep saying yes because the legacy is still alive, the spirit is still there. You see, that's who Sarah Vaughn is. That's who Ida B. Wells is. That's who my mama is. Now, at the same time, though, and this is where I think uh, the complication begins, that we also have to be able to tell a story about why it is that our world historical footprint, on the one hand, which is undeniable, still does not translate into the masses of black people living lives of dignity and decency. And part of that has to do with black cowardliness, black complicity, black complacency. And that's a human thing. And at the same time, it also has to do with 
predatory capitalism. It's got to do with vicious legacy of the white supremacy and male supremacy. All of these factors and elements are operating such that our world historical print, and I think part of our world historical print is because we're in the, in the belly of an imperial beast. It's, a, it's the Americanization of the world that enabled jazz and hip hop to become the cultural expressions of the world of the youth because of the disproportionate amount of American influence, American power. And we happen to be on the inside of that power and influence and happen to be much of the democratic leaven within the American loaf to help make the place more decent, more democratic and so forth. So that all of these different levels and registers and dimensions have to be attended to in order to keep track of our humanity. And yet, you know, it, I, I do think that the, um, this issue of, of black humanity is a very, very profound one because, and, it's, and in some ways it's, it's true for human beings across the board, but especially for black folk, because we still cannot downplay the degree to which the levels of hatred and taught to hate ourselves, the levels of doubt taught to doubt ourselves, the levels of disregard taught to disregard ourselves are still operating inside of us, the white supremacy inside of black people. So, so in 1984, the New Republic published an essay of mine called uh, A New American Dilemma. And in that essay, this was kind of my coming out piece as a neoconservative way back. And in that, I made a distinction between the enemy without and the enemy within. So the enemy without was white racism and the enemy within was African-American problematic internal dynamic of psychology right. and social connection that right. manifests That's itself right. in many different ways. That's right. And, and the new dilemma I was arguing was basically that the locus of the problem has shifted from the enemy without to the enemy within. I'm not asking you to agree with that. I'm trying to make a different point. There was an enemy within Glenn Lowry. The personal locus of my own spirit and being was diseased, scarred. The connection between that phenomenon of living in the world honestly with oneself on the one hand and the political right. issue was one that I had not yet begun to even think about trying to draw. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm as, again, because I'm reflecting, because I'm trying to uh, put my finger on some core kind of moral, uh, you know, factors and, and, and low side of responsibility. It's a self-regard. It's a self-reflection. Yes. I wanted to be yes. honest. I wanted to be critical. I, I, I wanted to get to the root of things. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, thanks for allowing me that. No, but, see, but, but, but the fascinating thing is, though, and I just, I, I'll get personal, too, that, you see, one of the things I learned in vacation Bible school is that all of us are thoroughly diseased on the inside. It's just a question of what, what form it takes, of greed and hatred, of envy, contempt, of hypocrisy, and that, that disease quality of who we are on the inside 
must be unflinchingly confronted. You have to be honest and candid about that. Remember that wonderful essay by Kierkegaard one saying, I wish honesty was a Christian virtue, not just faith, <laughs> faith, hope, and love. That was one of the last things he wrote. And Rabbi Heschel actually has a wonderful reflection on it in his last book, Passion for Truth. And I agree with that, that that honesty, that's more Socratic than it is prophetic in that sense. But it's crucial. It's, in, it's, it's inescapable. But given that, the question then becomes not to allow our sense of just how diseased we are to be cloud what we can see and feel, i.e. love, and act, i.e. courageous struggles for justice. That, that, that those particular consequences of seeing more and feeling more deeply and acting more compassionately and courageously go hand in hand with our sense of being diseased. It could be white supremacy inside of us, whatever it is, whatever form it is, but it's basically hate and greed, I think, in the end. But the thing is, once you confront that, and, 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 and back to Brother Theogis's point, one of the reasons why we love our musicians is because within the context of the Black community, who has been more honest and unflinching in terms of coming to terms with the hounds of hell inside of their own souls than a Robert Johnson, than Aretha Frank, than a Billie Holiday, than a John Coltrane, a Donnie Hathaway. These are not just figures and entertainers. They are soul wrestlers in the Keatsian sense. Soul wrestlers, folk who are being so candid about who they are as human beings with black flesh in a world that refuses to in any way be a world that they think they can't wrestle with. Refusing to be victims in the, in the language of brother, well, brother Glenn here, you see. And that's one of the reasons why the black musicians have become so exemplary in all of their humanity. You see, I'm thinking the, about the my mother, man. And the Oscar Petersons. You're preaching, you're, you're preaching. My mama, giants, man. The, the late uh, Gloria Rusley, my dear, dear mother. And, and I, I was under the ironing board and sitting in front of the television and whatnot while she was uh, playing her music, her Dakota State and her Eartha Kitt, her, oh, Nancy, yeah. her Nancy Wilson. And, oh, Lord, you know, yeah. I mean, and it was all so soulful and it was a wailing cry, uh, but also a hopeful thing. And it, and, and it was, you know, yeah, it, it, it was what you were just referring to, but I was just giving another example of it, you know, of this, this young exactly. woman, single you mother. Remember the moment in Native Son, Richard Wright, about that. Richard Wright's so flat, Richard Wright just protests knowledge, Richard Wright ain't got nothing positive to say. He got moments in Native Son where he's listening to his mother sing in the kitchen. Yes. And what does he say? He says yes. he, he, he pulls back, but, he, but he's so taken by it, he's, he's, he's sucked in by it, that ain't no seduction of a narrow sort. That's a humanity being completely manifest such that that little Negro genius cannot deny the very thing he wants to deny. Amen to that. And that's, that's, that's who we are. And in the end, that's who human beings are across the board. I mean, I've been wrestling with my mother's death and it's been the poetry of uh, Boris Pasternak. Oh, I'm sorry for your loss, brother. I'm and sorry. And it's been the, uh, the music of uh, Dorothy Love Coates. It's interesting you mentioned Dakota because Dakota was somebody who we, we actually played in a number of the events because mom be listening to some, 
them on Broadway with Dakota <laughs> State and Dinah Washington too. But it was yeah. just a matter of being true to mom. You know what I mean? Being true to what produced her, being true to what went in to her in all of her sublimity and majesty, but also with all of her limitations and faults and flaws. Well, she's a human being too. Okay, now I got to ask you a question. Uh, Tedros, uh, forgive me if I play your role here, but I do want to hear about Chekhov. And, I, and more generally, because I've read a little Russian literature, not a lot, I've read a little bit. I read Brother Karamazov, I read Anna Karenina, I read oh, War yeah. and Peace, God Help oh, Me. Oh, you read the right <laughs> I read Dr. Shivago. Uh, you know, I've read some Solzhenitsyn. Uh, something tells me there's something called the Russian soul and that it's not uninteresting. That's right. And, uh, you know, all of this narrowness, all of this narrowness, you know, what color is the author? What color is the author? And I don't mean to belittle anybody, but it's a small way of looking at our intellectual inheritance. So I want you to talk about Chekhov. Well, I tell you this, though, I think the uh, between 1885 and 1920, there were 71 volumes translated into English by a sister named Constance Garnett. 71 volumes of Dostoevsky, Chekhov, Turgenev, uh, 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 Tolstoy, Leskov, Lermontov, and it transformed the English-speaking world. Transformed. That's where Virginia Woolf comes from. There's no accent to the press that she found it with Leonard Woolf. She translated Tolstoy, too. Why? Because the Russian intelligentsia, which is the first intelligentsia, the French were the second in the European context, the Russian intelligentsia took upon itself the definition of what it means to be human forms of soul craft under a vicious empire with mechanisms of censorship. And so they constituted civic life in their work because there was no civil society that was allowed. The empire had crushed the civic life of the budging, the budging nation. And so it's no accident that the Russians have the greatest literary tradition of the modern world, not just Europe, of the modern world. That's why when you go in James Baldwin's house, you see Chekhov. That's why Ellison begins with Dostoevsky's Underground Man, that we can go on and on and on. It's not just Black folk, it's, it's Americans, it's Russia. That's why Marquez can't live without Tolstoy. What did the Russians do? They attempted to zero in on the most fundamental question of what it means to be human, death, dread, despair, and disappointment. That's precisely what the Black musicians did in the American empire. The closest equivalent of the Russians are the Black musicians who did precisely that under a vicious empire of censorship and hatred coming at them. And I would argue that the Russians are deeper than the blues artists. They're deeper than Black people. Chekhov is deeper than the blues. Why? Because the blues still American. And America is all about the green light, as Gatsby put it at the end. Of, of, of the great Gasper. Tomorrow gonna be better. The futurity has a metaphysical status. Future ain't got no metaphysical status. The future can be fascist. If you don't get your act together, black people can disappear if we don't get our act together. That's why Aunt Esther dies in 1985 in the cycle by August Wilson. I asked the brother, she born in 1619, she died in 1985. How come August? Because black people are fading away. The best of black culture is fading away. It's getting completely commodified, completely commercialized, complete, completely accommodating to the very thing it was resisting. 
And that includes the politicians. That includes the academicians. That includes the musicians. Things don't last forever. Magnificent things always come to a close, including even the Russian literary tradition could actually fade away. And so we are here to be witnesses. We gonna bear witness to Art Tatum. We gonna bear witness to Chekhov. We gonna bear witness, and, and the only reason why we point out in the book, the old Joseph, the only reason why I think Chekhov is deeper than the blues is because Chekhov does not have a romantic bone in his body. It's all about stamina. It's all about endurance. It's all about Curtis Mayfield keep on pushing. It ain't about the future gonna be better. It ain't about the move toward perfect union and all the other romantic tropes that go hand in hand with what it means to be American. What, what? That's all right, ain't nothing wrong with being American. We just gotta acknowledge who, what, what goes into it and what it is. Chekhov is not American. He's, he's okay. Russian, he's so I, I gotta ask you a couple of questions. One of them, you're not hopeful about the American experiment? You're not hopeful? That's a question. The second one well, is, the second one is, how do you square this embrace of this Chekhovian as you describe it uh, realism, I don't know what the right word is right. here, but you say no fantasy, no believing in the fairy tale, face of the, what, the fact the way to, with that Christian thing that you started this conversation with. Absolutely. How do, how do, how do you well, square despair and with, with hope? Two wonderful questions. One is because Chekhov's not a Christian. Chekhov, I'm a Chekhovian Christian, but he's not a Christian. <laughs> Chekhov, Chekhov, Chekhov went to church on Sundays and he cried like a baby saying it's too beautiful to be true that he, he, he wishes it were true, but he just can't believe it. He's a Darwinian, he's a scientist, and he's a medical doctor. He, he said very much what you would say about, I got my PhD, I can't believe folk get up out of debt. Okay, that's fine, go on and go on with your PhD and work your life out, that's all right. <laughs> Some of us holding on to a promise and the promise don't make no sense whatsoever, but you hold on to the, but what Chekhov has and what you have is, yes, prisoners of hope, both of y'all. He is a prisoner of hope in a secular mode. I'm a, pris a prisoner of hope in a Christian mode. But at the same time, he's got the centrality of love, absolute love, absolute condemnation of no one. He got that from his Russian Orthodox church singing in that choir as a choir boy and being fundamentally shaped by the best of the Christian tradition, even as he accepts Christian love but refuses the Christian consolation. He accepts Christian compassion. He refuses the Christian conclusion. I hold on to the promise. So in that sense, I'm not fully a, a follower of Chekhov. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. But at the same time, the first question that you would, am I hopeful about the American experience? Am I hopeful about the species? Do we have what it takes to avoid self-destruction? That's a fundamental question for the species. I'm a prisoner of hope for the species. I'm a prisoner of hope for the American Democratic Project, as thin and feeble as it is, given all of the imperial white supremacist predatory capitalist forces. Yes, am I hopeful for Ethiopia? Am I hopeful for Eritrea? Am I hopeful for Nigeria? Yes, but with an unflinching look at the dimness. It's like the end of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy is about the tears. It's not about the magical possibility of the future. That's something that I really want to hold on to in order to keep fighting. That's what Beethoven says, <laughs> given the deafness that he wrote, that he had when he wrote the masterpiece, right? That's the kind of thing. Unflinching look at evil 
but refusing to give up on the quest for truth and goodness and beauty and the holy. And where do you situate the American National Project, if I can use those words? There's a huge military. Uh, there's massive economic interests uh, that are global. Absolutely. Uh, there, there are all kinds of commitments in all kinds of places, including the Middle East, that have uh, historical resonance and that entail the American. There's China. So uh, you had the Cold War. Should we, in our enlightened position of uh, humanism, be indifferent about how the outcome of the Cold War uh, should have come? I mean, would, would we rather that uh, the ideas and, and the spirit that animated uh, the uh, Soviet Union have had more sway and more influence uh, throughout the, uh, the world of peoples of color or less? Do, do we believe that prosperity and the capacity to respond to the legitimate claims of the humanity of people, they need health care, they need food Absolutely. and housing, it Absolutely. doesn't fall from the sky. You're talking to an economist. I'm not going to wave a PhD, but I'm just going to say there's no free. <laughs> there's no free lunch. It doesn't come from nowhere. You need incentive. You need industry. You need investment. You need entrepreneurship. You need the forming of new organizations. You need creativity. You need That's human right. aspiration. You need human aspiration. We can belittle the profit motive if we want to, but I'm sorry to have to report as a historical matter. No more effective way of generating wealth has been identified. That experiment was run through the 20th century and the jury is in on that. Look again at China. So, you know, I don't think the line between the normative, what are our moral obligations in the condition of our imperfect humanity and the prescriptive, what do we do, is a straight line. I will declare that I think the Americans prevailing over the Soviet Union in the Cold War was a good thing for humanity, for freedom, for possibility. I believe it was a good thing. Warts and all, I'm aware of every single wart. And I think it matters. I don't think we can sit this one out. I don't think we can afford to not, you know, you're a democratic socialist. Do I characterize you correctly? Right, sir? right, right. That's true, that's true. So the, the issue of what's the marginal tax rate? I understand there's wealth inequality. When we get right. down to cases, the issue of the regulation, you made allusion to the climate problem indirectly just a moment ago in terms of the preservation right. of humanity. Real decisions have to be made that have massive trillion, multi-trillion dollar consequences way down the line. The framework of intellectuality that I bring to parsing the relative equities and becoming able to arrive at a decision matters. They're going to call me a neoliberal economist because I want to bring the market into, uh, into play, because I want to have a rational plan, because I realize that the, in, the, the, the way the price system communicates the information that people need to make efficient decisions is effective and that that's been proven by history. That's a position is debatable, but that's a position that I would stake out. So I don't want to ramble here. I'm asking you who should be winning in the struggle of ideas. Is the American spirit project, the freedom idea, the, the market capitalism with warts to be displaced by what? By socialism? by European style welfare state. I mean, you know. Man, anyway. yeah, no, I know Dio just want to jump in and then I can't wait to get in. This is so rich. This is so is rich. So I'm rich. telling you, it's good stuff. I'm going to have to turn off my James Brown just to get, get this, this moment. Jump, jump right in though, Dio, and then I'm going to respond. Yeah, and I want to say this. Glenn, the uh, Richmond speech uh, that you shared with me, Yes. which I also shared with Glenn and, and uh, with Cornell. In fact, Glenn, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. 
There you are in the process of unraveling something remarkable, which is an internal critique of the limitations of neoliberalism through the lens of revolutionary Christianity, which synthesizes the project directly with that of Cornell. There is a family resemblance between these two interventions. On the one hand, you develop a very carefully worked out analytic examination of the limitations of what I call economism, materialism, as a matter of fact, which he insists is so coextensive with the spiritual that capital uh, is becoming mad in its obsession with economism and in that it has to be limited with the, with the discussion of the spiritual, of the religious. I call this Chekhovia, uh, as a matter of fact. <laughs> let, let, let me. I know Cornell wants to get in in response to something I've already said, but I got it. I got it. And thank you so no, much, Taylor. Thank you. Man, no, he read my essay, man. I, 2005, I was in Virginia somewhere, talked to some Christians because I'm still a Christian on being a Christian and being an economist, you know, was the essay. And, and what I was saying was I was saying, OK, so you got a kid. There's the candy bar. He can steal it. He doesn't steal it. Now, why doesn't he steal it? Is it because he did a calculation and he said the cost of stealing it, I might get caught, then it'll be trouble? Or is it because he said to himself, I'm not a thief. I, I'm not a thief and I don't steal. I say, you got parents and they got children to raise and you can have a welfare uh, bureaucrat trying to figure out the right incentives about what transfers to make and whatnot and encourage them to be good parents. But what could replace them saying with conviction to themselves that they are God's stewards in the lives of their children and they must care for them. Nothing can replace that. I was saying that the reliance upon economism, he calls it uh, this kind of, uh, I'm, I want more, uh, uh, what do I do to get more thing to the exclusion of the spiritually generated sense of meaning, the, the significance of life, which would then motivate people to act in various ways. Relying on incentives was really trivializing. There was a part of the human uh, psyche that uh, the part of the human condition that in principle, uh, in incentive-based uh, intervention could not reach. Uh, so it, it, it was like that. And yes, I, I related that to the experience of to the situation of African-Americans uh, in saying that uh, some of these things that we have talked about in the nihilism conversation, part of this right. conversation, uh, really could only be reached in this way could only be reached through the spirit and through the sense of who, who one is. And yes, at that time I connected to Christianity, although I don't think the argument requires Christianity uh, in order to be a critique of economism. <laughs> you no, but I, I, I like the Christianity up in there though. I, 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 I appreciate that though, but, yeah. but we, like Chekhov, we don't have to be Christians in order to be love warriors. Exactly. But, the point, but the thing is this though, let's just go back to- Yeah, uh, go back. Let's, let's go back to following Jesus into the temple and running out the money changers, the largest edifice east of Rome, protected by 400 Roman troops with bankers on the inside and the intellectuals right next door, rationalizing the domination of the poor and Jesus being willing to run these mother huckers out. Now, what does that mean in terms of China and Russia and the United States? What it means is you refuse to accept any of the frameworks that lose sight of the preciousness of the least of these. Poor Muslims in China, right? China, repressive, regimenting, 
worthy of condemnation. Poor people in, 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 in the United States, in Harlem, U.S. predatory capitalism is failing for them. Even after the, the communists leave, here come new gangsters with Putin in Russia. China will have new gangsters. So to the, the, the follow the person who goes in and runs out the money changers is beyond ideology. It is a moral and spiritual practice that has political consequences. So this is where you and I over, have always overlapped, Brother Glenn, that you and I come from the same Sunday school context. You, you have been concerned with poor black folk. You ain't never been obsessed with the black bourgeoisie. You ain't never been obsessed with Martha's Vineyard. You ain't never been obsessed with status and position. You've been concerned with poor black folk. You just got market-oriented solutions. And, and so the question becomes, the moral and spiritual dimension is to be in that temple, keeping track of those money changes or authoritarian elites or arrogant bureaucrats or condescending intellectuals, anybody who's downplaying the precious humanity of poor people, especially black and working poor people or prisoners. There ain't no accident you spent so much time talking about mass incarceration at a time when it was not popular. You got you, you got Angela. Y'all ain't got a whole lot in common ideologically, but you got a lot in common morally. You concerned about these brothers and sisters catching hell on the underside of the American empire. That's what it is to follow Jesus into that temple. Now, once you get, once, once you then try to understand where the money changes come from, what's the history of, how do we understand the American, uh, the, the American empire vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet empire? Both empires require certain kind of indictment, but there's no doubt that the American has certain liberties and freedoms that the Soviet empire didn't. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean the American empire is some massive success, and you acknowledge that too. It's been a failure for poor people. It's been a failure for the masses of black people. That's what Garvey and the others understood. They just had their own responses to it. That's why I can overlap with some of them because they're concerned about the poor folk who are catching hell. They just got narrow black nationalist responses to it that I'm highly critical of, because I'm not a nationalist for the most part of any sort. Every flag is under the cross for me, every flag, no matter what. And what is that cross? Unapologetic, unconditional love and unarmed truth. And what happens to unarmed truth and unconditional love in the world in which we live? Gets crucified. That's what the cross is all about. I would say that being able to uh, live without a flag is a luxury. I mean, le let me put it this way. The, what are the solutions to uh, take a poor community anywhere, Los Angeles, Oakland, Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and you want, you want a decent social safety net. You yeah. want investment in yeah. their future. That's you're not right. concerned about how much you're spending on that. You, you're interested in their, in, on their education. You're interested in their uh, mental health as well as in their physical health. Absolutely. You want those children to have stimulation from the whatever. Okay. That's right. So you want a, you want a robust uh, articulation of social commitment from the state. Yes. You need to mobilize billions upon billions of dollars. That can only happen when you tax people. Uh, uh, Tail just is showing the book. Uh, which is the basis of our country. That can only happen when you tax me. Let me just make my point. Let me just make my point. You need the political community. There is no global welfare state. There may be in some millennial future that I cannot imagine, but I don't see a global welfare state. What I see is a community of nation states 
that have arrogated to themselves the power to levy on their citizens on behalf of collective projects, such as taking care of the poor. So if I'm serious about taking care of the poor, I need the nation state. What does that mean? I need my fellow citizens. It yes. means I need some sense of shared fate and common purpose in oh, yes. order but, but, to but actually that, achieve the humanitarian goal. So I don't understand. I didn't say no flag. I just said that every flag is under the cross. That doesn't mean we have no flag. That the very concerns that I have of poor people as a radical Democrat is one in which those concerns came into the modern world in the shell of the nation state. And it remains in the shell of 193 nation states. And therefore, nation states are indispensable, but in the end, inadequate, but indispensable context of following that Palestinian Jew in the temple running out money chain, because it's a moral and a spiritual practice. It's not acting as if we have no flag. It's just every flag is to be measured, evaluated, judged in light of the cross. It's okay, under I, the cross. I got to ask you this, man. I got to ask you this, because I wasn't there in 1789 in Paris. But I know of the spirit of that moment, and I know what came of it. Neither was I there when the Bolsheviks seized power in 1917. But I also know, with the long benefit of history, the spirit of that moment and what came of it. And Mao Zedong could be mentioned here, et cetera. Yes. Et cetera. Okay. So it's easy to say, metaphor, turn over the tables. When you actually have turned over the tables, History has asserted itself, and it hasn't always been pretty. We could count the bodies. I know that there are bodies on the other side. But what I'm saying is, can we take responsibility for our moralizing by actually embedding it within some concrete ev institutional evolutionary process? But that's why, that's why our commitment to rights and liberties becomes absolute. That's what part of the critique of the terrorism that flowed out of 1789 and the terrorism that flowed in 1917. But you know and I know of the terrorism that flows from 1776 <laughs> with slavery, right? I'm not gonna put slavery on 1776. I'm gonna put slavery off to the side of 1776 and now we're gonna be into an argument. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say- 1861, they had a chance to come to terms with that terrorism, brother. They didn't. I agree with that. I agree That's with that. And they job. ought to have come. They ought oh. to have come to terms with it. They ought to That's have come so to terms true. with it. And in the in the fullness of time, it was come to terms with. There was a reckoning. And the a consequence of that was the emancipation. I'm saying the emancipation doesn't happen without 1776, as Lincoln recognized, as Frederick Douglass recognized. It doesn't happen without the I, I, I think there's elements, of, there's elements of 1776 that certainly contributed to the overthrowing of that white supremacist terrorism and slavery. Absolutely. I would not compete. That's what, the, that's what democratic ideals are all about. But we, we are the beneficiaries of the historical reckoning with slavery. We, we are standing here today, in fact, imbued with exactly the rights that we would have asserted ought to have been extended to all human beings. It was not the case at the founding of the country. It has come to be the case in uh, the fullness of time. That itself is worth celebrating, is it not? Certainly, Absolutely. it's not a common experience on the planet yes, that an enslaved is. population would come in the fullness of time Absolutely. to occupy uh, the position of equal citizenship in the country. But you would also agree that in terms of the socialist impact on our lives vis-a-vis -vis elimination of child labor, vis-a-vis -vis 
not working seven days a week, work the labor movement, bringing us the weekend. That was not Thomas Jefferson and George Washington that no, brought that not. about. Oh, that's the workers' movement. That's the socialist movement. Yeah. We are beneficiaries of that too. The same would be true with the feminist movement and the suffragist movement. That wasn't George and and and, and Tom, right? No, that was that was movements from around the world of women. And right? the freedom for blacks that I'm celebrating now was the fruit of the civil rights movement and uh, is exemplifying exactly. And those movements are not independent from one another. That's right. And, and a movement of people for peace in the world that challenges militarism yeah, and so forth and so on. Yeah, Martin Luther King at the Riverside Church, 1967, Poor People's Campaign and so forth. There you go. There you go. I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. That's right, Glenn. It's I who am with you. <laughs> <laughs> we are with you, Glenn. So, man, I don't know where to go with this. I mean, I want to ask about Afro sensibility within the global philosophic community. I, I want to ask about what an Ethiopian philosopher and a, a, a Sacramento-born Black American philosopher, the, the meaning of this mind. I mean, I really honestly, and I'll be absolutely honest with you, everybody should look at this book, but I didn't understand all the arguments in this book, man, because they got a no, little bit technical. All right. That's all right. Why not? But, that's but, all right. but here, maybe we can close out. Unbelievable talent. That brother's teaching me things all the time. I got to catch up on. I've got to catch up with you, Conrad. <laughs> and now we've got, uh, we've got the great Glenn, whom I had uh, always admired, becoming uh, part and parcel of a global project so that we can uh, revitalize uh, an opportunity that was historically created by the um, inadequacies and failures of the Emancipation Proclamation, which was an opportunity to have exercised for the first time in global history a multiracial democracy. We have to return uh, to, to, to that incomplete project and a la Glenn revitalize discussions surrounding it through the participation of two major minds, such as Glenn, Cornell, George Yancey, Neil Roberts, uh, Paget Henry, Lewis Gordon, um, Charles Mills. We have some powerful thinkers who are doing first, uh, first rate work, uh, aiming at the realization of a failed opportunity, namely an authentic recreation of a multiracial democracy uh, through a global flag. Well, I'm going to let that be our, our, our final word here. I don't want to take too much of anybody's time. And I'm so grateful for you guys to join me here at the Glenn Show. There's the book, Conversations with Cornell West, co-authored by Teodros Kuros, philosopher, professor at Berkeley School of Music in Boston. And the great Cornell West, who needs no further description, iconic figure in our time. Uh, I would ask you about the tenure thing at Harvard, man, but it would be a downer. It would be a, it would be a real downer. Uh, and here's what I said about that. Harvard needs Cornell West a lot more than Cornell West needs Harvard. Well, you're very kind, though, brother. You're very kind, though. No, but I'll tell you, I'm giving both of y'all a genuine hug because you are too forces in the universe who are in so many ways forces of good and 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 have helped me try to be a stronger force of good given the uh, crack vessel that I am. <laughs>